Lord, as we think of opening Your Word now, I, I pray that You would impress upon us again, Lord, closely what, what Your Word is. That this is, this is what You have spoken, what You have inspired, what You have breathed out for us and for our instructions. I pray that we might see it as such. How easy is it for us that we can grow dull? Just we have our Bibles and we've had them for long periods of time and we've read them often and we can lack and miss the preciousness of Your Word. But I pray that You would help help us to see this for what it is. God, drive home to us the, the truth here is the one main point which I'll preach today. I, I pray that it would come across. You would help us. You would strengthen us to hold fast to Jesus. He is our hope. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. He is our joy. He is um, our high priest. He is our apostle. He's the one who sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the one who has accomplished redemption for our sins. He is the one who has mediated between us and you. He's the one who bore the wrath of God in our stead. He's the one who died for us. He became the suffering Lamb who bore our transgressions and bore our iniquities. He's the one who was pierced for us. And Lord, may we see Him as precious today. So lift Him up in my words that I preach. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, Christian biography has been a, an incredible encouragement uh, not only to me, but for many Christians down through the ages. Um, and particularly one of the things that makes Christian biography so helpful and so encouraging is to read of people who in, encounter just immense trials in their lives and yet God strengthens them to continue to press on and to hold fast to Christ even amidst those trials. And then I think of through history the, the various biographies that have been written. A biblical biography is written of Stephen who was killed for preaching Jesus. He held fast until the end while he was pelted with rocks. He called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees because he was dying, he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It's just an encouraging thing to see that, that Stephen, as he died, even died with a sweet spirit. Another example in church history is that of Polycarp. He lived in the first century, was a disciple of John. The Apostle John, he was discipled by him. He knew him. Polycarp was from Smyrna. If you remember Revelation, Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2 is a persecuted church. And he said, you're going to have tribulation for ten days, but be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. And Polycarp was faithful unto death. He stood before the Roman proconsul right, right there in front of everybody. And the Roman proconsul said, swear by the fortune of Caesar, take the oath and I will release you. Curse Christ. And Polycarp said those famous words, holding fast to his faith. He says, 86 years I've served the Lord Jesus Christ. He's never wronged me. How can I blaspheme the King who saved me? The proconsul threatened, I have wild beasts. I'll throw you to them if you don't change your mind. He said, let them come. My purpose is unchangeable. If the wild beasts don't scare you, the proconsul then said, I'll burn you with fire. And then Polycarp said this, you will threaten me with a fire which will burn for an hour and then we'll go out. 
but you are ignorant of the fire, the future judgment of God reserved for the everlasting torment of the ungodly. And they said, but why do you delay? Bring on the beast or the fire, whatever you choose. You shall not move me to deny Christ my Lord and Savior. He was soon after burned at the stake. And as I read these things, I'm encouraged in my heart to say that the same God I serve and worship is the same God that strengthened Polycarp to hold fast to Christ, even facing his death. Or John and Betty Stam, missionaries to China in the 1930s during the Chinese Civil War. They were ministering and the, the communists were coming in and just as they heard they were coming, they tried to escape but were captured by the communists. Here's some missionaries on the hands and uh, they were demanding $20,000 from China Inland Mission. And uh, here's what John wrote on December 6, 1934, China Inland Mission, Shanghai. Dear brethren, my wife, baby, and myself are today in the hands of the communists in the city of Tsingte. Their demand is $20,000 for our release. All our possessions... Um, are in their hands, and we praise God for peace in our hearts in the meal tonight. God grants you wisdom in what you do, and us fortitude, courage, and peace of heart. He is able and a wonderful friend in such a time. What a testimony to write. Things happened quickly this morning. They were in the city just a few hours after the ever-persistent rumors became really alarming so that we could not prepare to leave in time. We were just too late. The Lord bless and guide you. And as for us, may God be glorified, whether by life or by death. Quoting there from Philippians 2 someplace. Philippians 1. In Him, John Stam. Soon after that, the communists took him out and he stopped. He happened to be able to send a letter to one last letter to uh, the China Inland Mission. The postmaster recognized him. He said, so where are you going? He said those famous words, well, I don't know where they are going, referring to his captors, but we're going to heaven. Soon afterwards, they were taken up from the hill outside of town, arrived to a clump of pine trees. John was told to kneel. The soldier lopped off his head right in front of his wife, who quickly kneeled thereafter and entered glory with Jesus, standing firm for Christ. I, I love these stories. A few years ago, testimony of Cassie Burnell. Remember, she was one of the Columbine High School students. The story goes that one of the killers had a gun to her face and through some other talks had known that she was a Christian and said, do you believe in God? She said, yes. And bang, she was dead. She held fast until the end. And these sorts of stories encourage my faith and encourage many people's faith because it shows that Jesus Christ is not only worth living for, He's also worth dying for. But for every story that's told of people who hold fast, have held fast, there are dozens, hundreds that aren't told. Your story may never be told. Of God has strengthened you in difficult, tumultuous times. Uh, I've, I've showed you before, but I've got some books that we've read to our kids. It's called uh, Jesus Freaks. And um, just talks about martyrs. And we just pull these out from time to time and just read. They're two or three pages each. And I know some of you probably have this. We're, we're that way through Volume 1, about two-thirds through. And when we get done with Volume 1, we'll be Volume 2. It'll be a couple years, but we're just going through it slowly. Because I believe that it's an encouragement as we hear of people holding fast for Christ. But it's not only martyrdoms. There's also, also just people standing firm in tough times. They're also encouraging about Christian biography. 
Like Martin Luther, I've been encouraged by him many, many times. He stood before the authorities of the Roman Catholic Church. The, the, the whole known church at that time, they had power and they had authority. They could excommunicate him from the church. They could kill him. And they grabbed him before the Diet of Worms. Copies of his writings laid out on the table before him and they asked him two questions. Are these your books and do you stand by their contents? After a night of prayer and contemplation, Martin Luther held fast saying, Unless I'm convinced by the testimony of Scripture by clear reason, for I do not trust either the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they've often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. He held fast. And his life as a result of that was filled with turmoil. He was constantly on the run, fleeing from those who wanted to kill him. He sought exile. He even at one point disguised himself by growing a beard as he was translating the German New Testament. But Martin Luther held fast until the end. I'm encouraged by people who forsake the riches of this world to follow Christ, like William Borden. He was heir to the great Borden estate. I mean, this would be like Bill Gates' son. He doesn't have a son, but it would be someone like that. Um, some rich man with some, some incredible company, lots of wealth at his disposal, could have done whatever he wanted. He forsook it all, so he became a Christian, went to, went to seminary, decided to become a missionary to the Muslims of China. In his Bible, he wrote a little note and dated it. He said, no reserve. He said, that's where I'm going, no reserve. When his father told him, and I, I don't know enough about his life, but I sense that there was some antagonism there. His father said, you can't ever come back and work for us again. He dated and wrote in his Bible, no retreat. Shortly before he died of spinal meningitis, training to go to China, I think at age 28 or something like that, he wrote in his Bible, no regrets. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. It's the title of a biography of his. He held fast his faith in Christ. It's just encouraging to see someone forsake things of the world. Or Moses. In Hebrews 11, verse 24, we're told of Moses. That by faith, when he had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing the riches of Egypt, the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Here's Moses, right? Son of the king, son of, son of the Pharaoh, and he could have had all the riches of King Tut. You know, all the riches of the Pharaoh, and he, he turned it away and chose reproach for the people of God instead. And when you see that time after time after time of God's people walking righteously, um, you know, losing jobs. I remember reading of people in China, just common workers during Hudson Taylor's days. And they worked in China seven days a week and no days off. But the Christians, prioritizing worship, went and took a day off and got docked on a pay and worked basically for six days for five days' wages. It's a reproach of Christ. But it was worth it because they held fast to Him. And we could tell more stories. Latimer and Ridley burned at the stake. Christopher Love and his wife encouraging him to remain faithful on his way to martyrdom. Or Jim Elliott, Nate Saint and their friends who died in Ecuador. John Bunyan, who held fast to Christ and was in prison. Adoniram Judson, William Carey, who held fast in foreign lands. And there are countless more who can hold fast, who have held fast, and they can be an encouragement to us. I commend Christian biography to you. My message this morning is entitled, Hold Fast 
So it comes from one verse in our Bibles, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. If you haven't done so, I invite you to open your Bibles there. We're going to look at one verse this morning, just verse 23. It says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Short verse, that's all we're going to look at. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful. In fact, it's so short, I'd like for us to memorize it today together. Last week, I quoted from 2 Timothy 1 because our family been memorizing You all can memorize this. You all can do this. This week, we memorized about four or five more verses in chapter 2. It's not very hard. I can just repeat it over and over again. Let's, let's do it, right? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. 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 All right. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful. 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 Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful. One last time. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful. That's all you need to do. Tomorrow... You'll be like, oh, what was that? And if you read it once or twice and then say it out loud five times, the next day you'll be able to say it in your sleep and you say it for the next 15 days and you'll have it for life. Okay? It's that easy. That's all, that's all that we do to memorize chapters of the Bible. It's not too difficult. But here it is. Let's say it again. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. This verse has two parts. There's a command and there's a reason for the command. Or a command and a foundation to the command. A command and then a justification for the command. The command is this, so we hold fast. And the foundation comes in that He who promised is faithful. That's my outline this morning. We have a command and we have the foundation. Let's first look at the command. This command actually is the second of three commands in the greater section here. Each of them begin with the phrase, let us. Let me read verse 19 through 25 and you'll catch them. Therefore, brethren, 
since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, right? Two other foundations. Since we have confidence to enter, since we have a great priest, here are the three commands. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Everyone together. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And the third command then comes in verse 24 that we'll look at next week. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. These are the lettuce commands. Right? Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider how to stimulate to love and good deeds. Now, because of the impact of these, we have slowed down in just you know, a normal section I like to preach through, maybe 19 through 25. We're slowed down. A couple weeks ago, a month ago, before I left on vacation, we looked at the first one, draw near. We're going to look today at hold fast, and next week we'll look at the exhortation to, to love. This is, by the way, verse 23, I believe this is the exhortation of the book of Hebrews. You say, what's the exhortation in the book of Hebrews? What's it all about? Give me one short command. Well, we can say a couple of days. One way we can say it, what? Jesus is better, so press on. We can say it that way. But we can also say it this way. We can also say, hold fast. Hold fast to Jesus. That's the call of the book. Over and over and over again, having shown that Jesus is better than anything the Old Testament had to offer, whether it's the prophets or angels or Moses or Joshua or Aaron or Abraham, whether it's the priesthood, whether it's the covenant, whether it's the sacrifice, Jesus is better. He's better than all these. He's the better priest. He's the better sacrifice. He gives the better covenant. And so because Jesus is better, hold fast to Him. Cling to Him. Right? Or as I said, press on. Keep going towards Him. Don't lose ground. That's the picture. Hold fast to Jesus. Now, it's said in different ways. In chapter 2, verse 4, it said like this, don't drift. Right? The drifting one is the one who's grabbed on and just lets go or drifts and then can't reach it anymore. Or it says in chapter 3, verse 8, don't harden your hearts. Harden your hearts is the one that grips and then, uh, no, you know, goes from a gripping to a opposing. Chapter 6, verse 1, it said like this, let us press on to maturity. That's the one that just keeps going. Chapter 12, verse 15, it said like this, see to it that no one comes short to the grace of God. In other words, bring Jesus close. Experience His grace. Don't come short of His grace, but hold fast and keep it near. Chapter 12, verse 25 says this, See to it that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. Rather what? Embrace Him and hold fast and cling to Him. And, and all these exhortations are the same idea. Don't let go of Jesus. Keep your heart soft towards Him. Don't fall away. Don't come short. Don't refuse Him. Pursue Him. Keep Him front and center in all your life. It's the message of the book of Hebrews we've been hearing week after week after week after week. We're, we're coming about a year in Hebrews now. I think maybe six months and then we'll be done. The text this morning says the same thing. Let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Well, the question comes here in chapter 10, verse 23. What's the confession? What what, what do we need to hold fast to? I've said here we need to hold fast to Jesus. Jesus is the confession. 
I think I can back that up a little bit. Because three times in this letter, the writer refers to a confession. Turn back to chapter 3, verse 1. You can see it there. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. There he is. Jesus is the, the apostle. He's the high priest of our confession. I think that gives us a hint that it's about Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 14 uses the word confession as well. And it sounds a lot like chapter 10. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, it's just like chapter 10, verse 19, 20, 21. Right? Since we have a great high priest, right? and since we have confidence to enter the holy place, that's what it means to have a high priest. Jesus, the Son of God, because we have this great high priest, let's hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. Obviously, I think that the writer of the Hebrews has something in mind when he says confession. Um, But I'm not quite sure that it's finally labeled in a specific phrase. Like, the confession is this. There are books about confessions of faith like this. Great book, the Westminster Confession of Faith, has a hundred pages. By the time you get all the all the footnotes of all the proof texts of doctrine, this is what's called the Confession of Faith. I think that the confession talked about here in Hebrews is a bit more precise. Uh, I, I think I think it's not the confession about all truth. I think the confession spoken about here is the truth, particularly about Jesus and who He is. I think the confession of Hebrews has everything to do with Jesus, who He is, what He has done, and what He will do. Alright, so if you're looking for my definition or way to think about it, I think it's, it's this, the confession is about Jesus, who He is, what He's done, and what He will do. Because, I say, like in chapter 3, verse 1, the confession about Jesus, the confession is about Jesus, about the Apostle High Priest of our confession, but when you're at chapter 4, The confession is what we hold fast to and what helps us in the time of temptation. Did you catch that? Chapter 4, verse 14. Because we have this great high priest, let's hold fast our confession. And why should we hold fast our confession? Because of something that that confession is going to help us with. And particularly, it's going to help us with the fact that Jesus was tempted in all things we are, yet He was without sin. He can help us in time of temptation. And that's why we draw near chapter 4, verse 16. Just like my message a month ago in Hebrews chapter 10. We draw near because of this confession we have about Jesus, who He is, what He did, and what He will do. I think that the confession here is what gives us power. It sustains us through our trials. This confession here is our help when we counter the storms of life. The confession of Hebrews is more than just mere facts of theology. The confession of Hebrews is a person who can come and help. That's why we cling. We don't cling to the Bible. We cling to the thing the Bible points to, right? We cling to Jesus. We cling to God. But the Bible tells us about God, and so we we believe and embrace the things here. Well, there are other, other clues we can get when we say, okay, what's this confession? And I'll show you why I think it's about Jesus, what He's done. Um, there are several other places in the Scripture that, that speaks in, in Hebrews that talk about holding fast. 
something to hold fast to. In this case, it's holding fast to confession. I want to show you some other place of what we're holding to. And I think that those things are the same. He's not telling us to hold the five different things. He's telling us to hold the one thing. But this one thing is described in lots of different ways. So, for instance, turn back to chapter 3, verse 6. We see this hold fast word being used. Chapter 3, verse 6, contrast with Moses who was faithful as a servant in his house. Christ was faithful as a son over the house. means that Jesus is better than Moses. And then he says, we are his house. Whose house we are. And here's how we show if we are in his house. This is an indication that we are in his house. If we hold fast, kateko, the same Greek word here as used in chapter 10. If we hold fast, not our confession, but here we're seeing we hold fast two things. Our confidence and we hold fast the boast of our hope firm until the end. I think this start helping us filling out what this confession is. First of all, we have this confidence to our confession. It's, it's, it's a faith in our confession. It's a little bit like Paul who said to Timothy, I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced, I'm confident, that He is able to guard that which I've entrusted Him until that day. I just know that, that I can trust myself to Jesus. Uh, he's been trusted there. I have this confidence. I know who Jesus is. We've placed a trust in Him. And this is the confidence in which we stand. We, we stand firm on Jesus and who He is. Also in chapter 3, verse 6, we see the reality of hope. In chapter 10, verse 3, right? Let's hold fast the confession of our hope. Here's, here's the hope, the belief of our hope. What's, what's our hope? It has to do with future things. The hope is that Jesus is all we need. That we don't need anything else. The, the Jews were trying to persuade Him back. Oh, you need the Old Testament sacrifices. And you need these high priests. And you need Moses. And, and you need all these things. They said, no, no, no. Our, our, our hope is that we need Jesus and Jesus alone. That's where we're placing our trust. Hope is a synonym for faith. Jesus is the one that we have confidence in, sure thing in our mind. We're hoping that He is going to bring us to the Father, mediating between us and Him, sins forgiven. That's uh, inside of the confession. We're, we're, we're holding fast to our confidence, right? Confidence in Christ. And we're boasting of, of our hope in Christ. And as we do that firm until the end, we demonstrate that we are the house of God. Chapter 3, verse 14. Same thing. We have become partakers of Christ, past action, present results, if we hold fast. There it is again, kateko. If we cling to, if we grip, if we grab, if we grab and hold on to the beginning of our assurance firm until the end, that shows that we've become partakers of Christ. Notice again how close this is to our verse. Let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And here, rather than talking about a confession, this verse speaks here about assurance. And again, the same, same idea. It's a confidence. It's our hope. It's assurance. And what's the assurance that we have? The assurance is that we have Jesus, a high priest, who's going to bring us to the Father. That's the assurance of everything that we have. So what's our confession? I think it's all about Jesus. It's our faith in Jesus. It's about Jesus what He's done, who He is, what He's done, what He will do. So, for instance, here's what I think the confession is. That Jesus Christ is everything that Hebrews says He is. 
He is the Son of God. He's the radiance of His glory. He's the exact representation of God. He's the one sent by God. He's the Apostle. He's the one that upholds the universe by the word of His power. That's who He is. He's the sovereign, magnificent Lord. What has He done? Well, He's made purification of sins, first of all, by offering a better sacrifice than the sacrifice of the Old Testament. He's purified the heavenly tabernacle, not merely the earthly tabernacle. He sat down at the right hand of God. He's given to us a better covenant which was promised long ago. That's what Christ has done. And and so what will He do? Well, He will serve as our high priest and will do everything that the book of Hebrews says He will do. He will sympathize with us and help us in our temptation. He will be the mediator of a new covenant and thereby bring us to God. His blood will speak better than the blood of Abel and all the animals that were ever offered upon Jewish altars. That's what Jesus is. Who He is, what He did, what He will do. He will help us and strengthen us. And that's, that's by the way, I think is a living reality in our text. We're not, we're not clinging to some document. We're not clinging to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Like, this is where our hope is. We're clinging to Jesus. hope I'm okay here. Because of what He did. Who He is, what He did, and what He will do. And we're clinging to the living Christ with confidence and hope and assurance and knowing that that's going to be the very thing that carries us through our trials and temptations. And that's what urge upon all of you, church family. And when you're facing trials and difficulties, oh, you may not be facing gunpoint, confession of your faith, you believe in God, but you may be facing some other difficult challenges whether it be joblessness or whether it be pressure at work or whether it be temptations. You're, you're facing them. And I say the, the way to get through them is to hold fast your confession, right? Believe the hope you have. Norm Wakefield has done a good job at defining the confession. He said it this way, Jesus Christ is God's Son and our High Priest. After He made purification for sin, He sat down at the right hand of the Father where He intercedes for us and runs all things by the word of His power. And He will preserve us through suffering, trial, temptation by giving us grace and mercy if we draw near to Him and hold fast our confession. It's good. Something like that. That's what it means. That's what we need to cling to. Cling to everything that Christ is. Now, when we we look again here in chapter 10, verse 23 at these words at the command, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. There's something assumed in these words. Assumed is the storm. That's what's assumed. See, there's something that's pulling you away. There's something that's pushing you to waver. That's why he's saying do it without wavering. He's saying cling to it and don't waver. I mean, on a calm day, you don't waver. You just kind of stand there. But if a huge wind comes up, you've got to grab onto something to make sure you don't waver. And so the assumption here is that the storm is coming. The original readers had a storm. They'd come out of Judaism, come into the church, and they were in this precarious situation because they had, had turned away from their, their Judaism to, to the fulfillment of the Judaism. To embrace that, be who they are. And, and they got people like, like pulling them back. Oh, they may not be winds, but they are, are people tugging them. Say, hey, come back. Come back to the sacrifices. Come back to the fathers. Come back to the feast day. You're missing it. And they said, no, my hope is on Jesus Christ's righteousness. My hope is on Him. 
I'm resting upon who He is and what He has done and what He will do. That's my hope. My hope's not in those things. Those are pictures and shadows to lead us and teach us of Christ. But they're being pulled away and, and the writer's here saying this, don't move, don't stray, don't drift, don't come short, but rather hold fast to Jesus. The picture here is a scared child clinging to her mother, squeezing tighter each time the lightning is seen and the thunder is heard, holding fast. The picture here is the rock climber, climber who's climbing the rocks, ascending the cliff when a storm comes in and winds are blowing and he's grabbing on, making sure he doesn't get swept off the hill by the wind that's coming. It's the man whose boat is capsized along the river. He's being swept away by the river current. Soon to go over a waterfall, but he grabs an overhanging limb and is, is clinging there, but it's pulling him away. He's holding fast the confession which is going to save him until that day. That's the picture here. When the storms of life come, this verse is a call to hold fast to Christ when you're tempted to sin. This verse of is a call to hold fast to Christ when your boss calls you to do something unethical. It's a call to hold fast to Christ when your college professor tells you there is no God. It's a call to hold fast to Christ when your family, perhaps your extended family, calls you foolish for being so devoted to church. What are you doing? Come boating with us instead. It's a verse to call to hold fast to Jesus when the Jehovah Witnesses seek to persuade you Jesus isn't God. It's a call to hold fast to Jesus when the government comes and takes your property away because of your faith in Christ. Okay, I, I don't think any of you are facing that last one. But, but they were. Look over in chapter 10. We're in chapter 10. Look at verse 34. You showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. There's a storm, huh? When someone knocks on your door and says, do you believe in Christ? And you're holding fast. You say, yes. Give me the keys. You're homeless. This is ours because only Caesar worshipers can stay in our kingdom. And you're homeless. Seize your property because of the faith in Christ. That happens in some foreign lands today where there's persecution. And what, what causes it? What, what is it that helps people hold fast? It's the confession of our hope. These people were facing sin. They're facing those battles. So we face today, their sins are different. The sins are the same. A lot of sins they dealt with, we are dealing with today, maybe in different forms. But the writer constantly speaks about just um, how go to Jesus, because He can be your help. Chapter 2, verse 18. Since He Himself was tempted in that which He has suffered, He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Or chapter 4, verse 15, we read, He can sympathize with us in our weaknesses because He Himself was tempted in all things we are, yet without sin. And I'm just telling you, the way through sin victoriously is to hold fast our confession, hold fast to Jesus, who He is, what He's done, what He will do. He'll help you and strengthen you. They faced ridicule. 
like college professors and family and bosses calling you foolish. They, they face that. That's what chapter 10, verse 32 and 33 are about. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming shares of those who were so treated. It's speaking here about being mocked, being called names, being ridiculed, entering trials and tribulations. And they said you endured them. And what's the secret to enduring them? To hold fast to our confession. Hold fast to Jesus. Who He is, what He did, what He will do. That's the way to conquer all these things. Now, I don't know what exactly the circumstances and storms of your lives are today. But, but if holding fast our confession can get us through imprisonment and the seizure of our property and can help us be strong even in the face of martyrdom, I think that holding fast to Jesus can help you in your problems and your difficulties today. The call of this text. The application to us. So hold on to Jesus. Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. What comes next? Okay, this is what happens when you memorize things, okay? Is that you say it and like ten minutes later it's gone, alright? But what happens if you say it ten minutes later, then ten minutes later it's still there, but an hour later it's gone. So if you say it an hour later, then you got it, but next day it's gone. But if you say it the next day, it kind of helps. So okay, here... Chapter 10, verse 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Let's say again. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Alright, let's talk about that last part. For He who promised is faithful. That's the foundation. Or it's the reason. I'm just, that's the word I came up with. The foundation. Because. There's a word there. We hold fast because of this reason. Now, this is a flip of what it was a month ago. We looked at this exhortation to draw near. <clears throat> In there, the, the, the foundations were first. Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new living way, which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is flesh. Since, since we have this confidence, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, those are the foundations we are to draw near. But now, in this case, it's just flipped backwards. But still, always in the Bible, it's the, um, the indicative is always the grounds for the imperative. What is true is always the commands for the ground for what we do. Same thing here, just different order. We hold fast because of the character of God. And here particularly we see we hold fast because of the faithfulness of God. Because God is faithful. Scriptures often speak of the faithfulness of God. Perhaps the most famous verse in all the Bible is Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The Lord's compassions indeed never cease. His loving kindness indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your, what? Faithfulness. And we know that. I'm not sure if you remember the original context of that. Here's Jerusalem. The Babylonians have come. And that city that used to be swept with lots of people in a busy activity is now lonely and desolate. Jerusalem's ransacked. It's all done. Jeremiah has wept tears at seeing what has been done with the city. And seeing all the people have been taken away. And yet he says, 
the high point in the book of Lamentations. In chapter 1 and chapter 2, he describes all the, all the tribulation, all the distress. And then chapter 3 comes his peak. And then in chapter 4 and 5, he describes all the tribulation and distress. And here it is. What's the peak? Great your faithfulness. Even in trial and difficulty. There are many other passages that speak of the faithfulness of God. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4 says, The rock, His work is perfect. All His ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without justice, righteous and upright is He. There it is. He's a God of faithfulness. And when you talk about being faithful, primarily you're talking about what you say you're going to do, you do. And that is the case in Psalm 33, verse 4. The Word of the Lord is upright. And all His work is done in faithfulness, right? What God says, He will do. Psalm 91, verse 4, He will cover you with His pinions, and under your wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. So there's a, there's a, there's a sheltering, there's a shielding, there's a, there's a helping. That's why it makes sense to attach this reason to this command. We hold fast because He's a shield and a bulwark is His faithfulness. It, it strengthens us. It, it's, a, it's a foundation. It's what makes us strong. New Testament, there's plenty of verses saying the same thing. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, faithful is He who calls you and He will bring it to pass. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, He remains faithful because He cannot deny Himself. God is faithful and there's no doubt about it. I think though the faithfulness of God is much like I spoke last week about the glory of God. It, It needs not to be merely proclaimed and said and taught it needs to be experienced and I think that's what Jeremiah was experiencing experiencing the faithfulness of God even in the midst of ruin which by the way God had predicted beforehand because of the sins of Manasseh and other kings you're going to come and devastation is going to come and God brought it just like he was going to but he's faithful to his remnant he's faithful to his people earlier I spoke of holding fast to Christ like, a, like the grip of a scared child to a mother and here, in this half of the verse, we see the flip side of it. When we think of the faithfulness of God, we're looking now at the, the mother holding on to the child. And the reality of the situation is this. As one Puritan said something like this, I tried to find the quote, I couldn't. So, the security of the child is more closely related to how strong the mother holds the child than how strong the child is holding the mother. And that's what's true about the faithfulness of God. Our security is more dependent upon His faithfulness to us than it is dependent upon our faithfulness to hold fast. Through the Scriptures, you see lots of examples of people who failed to hold fast from time to time. Can you think of any? Think of mind? Who failed to hold fast? David failed to hold fast. Absolutely. Sin of Bathsheba and he didn't hold fast and yet God's faithfulness was greater and he restored him. Anyone else? Jonah. Absolutely. He fled to Tarshish. And yet God brought him back. Others? Who? Eli? Yeah, I bet. He's not quite as clear. But yeah, he was, uh, he was a good... Good man, but he didn't discipline us, didn't keep his sons. Who over here would it say? Peter, absolutely. And he's the obvious example, right? Denied the Lord three times. And yet again, God, God's arms were bigger. 
You know, he was kind of pushing away for a little bit, but God brought him in to the point where he, he clung. And by the way, here's what I say. Every saint has had times where they fall away and push back. And every saint experiences God coming and bringing in. We'll see that even in chapter 12. If you're disobedient, God's judgment is going to come. He's going to discipline you to bring him back because he loves. And, and so, any, so you think about Abraham wasn't perfect, Right? I mean, he had times of faltering, times of unbelief. Even the father of faith had times of unbelief. Uh, Noah, God showed grace on him, but there are some things in his life that aren't, aren't exactly upright. You just go through any saint. Thomas. Thomas like that. And some, as we don't know enough about other people, but they're all like that. It's God's arms of faithfulness is what really helps and extends. And you take that analogy, right? The, the rock climber. Right, clinging to the wall, lest the wind and the storm. What, what's ultimately helping him though? His strength on the rocks to keep him from the wind, or his belay rope that he's got clear up to the top. That's that's where his true security is. Oh, he might get dinged up if he gets blown off, but he's he's belayed up to the top. And that's the faithfulness of God. That's the arms of God reaching down. Well, what does the faithfulness of God mean? Fundamentally, it means that God has integrity. When God says something, He will do it. When God makes a promise, He'll fulfill the promise. In fact, if you look here at the end of verse 23, you see this promise terminology. It doesn't say that God merely is faithful. It says He who is promised is faithful. You know, when uh, someone makes a promise to you in life, you need, and you do this naturally, but you discern their character to see how much you're going to... Trust the promise, right? And, um, you know, at one point you might trust somebody, right? Um, fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice. No, fool, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I think that's what it is, right? Because when someone makes a promise, you discern their character. If they demonstrated in the past they're faithful to do that, you can consider it done. But if in the past they've shown that they make promises, they're empty promises, you're like, that's never going to happen. Maybe it'll help you at the voting booth a little bit to know that the promises made aren't always... You just, just look at the track record. Look at the character. And when you think about the character of God, there's no question of His character. He's faithful. What He says, He will do. We can trust His promises. And that's exactly what Sarah did. And Sarah, by the way, is one who had times of doubt. But look in chapter 11. Can't wait till we get here. We're going to talk for months about faith. By faith, Abraham, chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. And you look at that and you say, why did Abraham go out not knowing where he was going? Because God called him there. God said it. And he, he considered that God is faithful and so he went out. Or the next verse about Abraham. Even. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise. He's in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Why is he doing that? Because, verse 8, he's looking for the city which has foundations, the architect and builder is God, who God told him about. And so he's believing and trusting God. That's why he's living in tents. And then here we see the connection between promise and faithfulness in the life of Sarah. By faith, verse 11, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even when she's 90 even beyond the proper time of life. And here's the key, right? Since 
she considered him faithful who had promised. You see the connection there? God promised the son. Initially, he should laughed. You can read about Genesis 18. But she said, you know what? The one who promised, he's, he's a faithful God and I can trust him. And so she considered him faithful who had promised. And sure enough, what he said came exactly to fruition. And I think you need to see the promise of God linked to the faithfulness of God. And pertinent to our text this morning, I think the promise of God is the confession. The confession is who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus will do. I just encourage you all to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Because you promised has such a character that He's faithful and He'll bring it to pass. Okay? We hold fast. Hold fast to Christ. 